Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with the lead author of the article, HIV Risk Behavior Profiles Among Men Who Have Sex With Men Interested in Donating Blood, Findings from the Assessing Donor Variability in New Concepts and Eligibility, or ADVANCE study. Welcome to Dr. Brian Custer. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Custer, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much. My name is Brian Custer. I am the director of Vitalant Research Institute based in San Francisco, California, and also a senior vice president of research and programs at Vitalant. As well, I hold a position as an adjunct professor in the Department of Laboratory Medicine at UCSF. Thank you. So to start out with, can you just summarize this study for our listeners? Yes, thanks. Um, So the ADVANCE study, and I will just refer to it by that acronym, was designed to ask the question, are there questions that would be appropriate to add to the donor history questionnaire that would potentially be able to differentiate between men who have sex with men who might have a higher risk of HIV acquisition and those who might have a lower risk of HIV acquisition? So the idea behind the study was to assess whether these questions do differentiate um, risk profiles among men who have sex with men, and then more broadly to ask the question, and would those be appropriate to have on the donor history questionnaire. Now, to do that, there was, of course, a couple of different things we had to do. We had to not only develop the questions that we thought would be appropriate, but also additional aspects. So it wasn't simply an interview um, study. We also collected a blood sample from all of the participants, and we tested that blood sample for biomarkers of HIV, so nucleic acid testing, and also serology or antibody response as individual samples. As well, we tested for one drug that is found in oral forms of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, and that particular drug was tenofovir. And what did you find? So we did find that these questions did a very good job of differentiating um, men who have sex with men who have higher numbers of sexual partners or more sexual partners in a given time period compared to those who have fewer numbers of partners. In addition, we looked specifically at how were responses different for those who reported that they were taking pre-exposure prophylaxis, so self-reported pre-exposure prophylaxis use, compared to those that were not taking pre-exposure prophylaxis. And we found, again, that um, those who reported using PrEP or taking PrEP had higher numbers of sexual partners. This makes a lot of sense. Those individuals at higher risk um, of HIV acquisition are, of course, recommended to take PrEP to reduce the risk of HIV acquisition whereas those who had zero or a single partner had much lower likelihood of reporting that they were taking PrEP, um, as well as smaller smaller numbers of sexual partners during the period that we evaluated. The entire study looked at three different periods. We asked people questions, these questions about the number of sexual partners, um, the types of sexual activities that they were doing, and whether they were taking pre-exposure prophylaxis in the month before they participated in the study, in a three-month period before participation in the study, and also a 12-month period. And of course, each of those questions or time periods were potential areas that I think the FDA was interested in understanding how would these questions perform, again, at differentiating potentially higher-risk individuals from lower-risk individuals. So what led you to do this study? You mentioned the FDA. Was this done in conjunction with the FDA, or did you all start this on your own? Yeah, thank you. It's a a great question. So, So This study was very much initially conceived by the FDA. 
And I think there's a really important aspect of that. So this, the FDA had a working group that they had um, impaneled really in the period, I would say, of around 2018 to 2019 to ask the question, what kinds of research studies would be appropriate potentially for advancing um, the ability to change the rules for who is allowed to donate um, in terms of being a sexually active men or have sex with men. So the FDA released a request for proposals for organizations to respond to their willingness to potentially lead the advanced study. And why am I describing it this way? This means there was basically an outline of the scientific objectives that the FDA was hoping to achieve by conducting a study. The people who responded, including us at Vitalant, along with our partnering other blood centers, were able to make suggestions for modifications for the methods. But that question of specifically saying, what would be the ability to differentiate between higher risk and lower risk men who have sex with men was really fundamental and a central part of what the FDA wanted the overall project to focus on. And to maybe make this one level clearer, FDA also funded this study. Again, I think that was an important clue from the perspective that FDA really was interested in trying to get the best quality data to try to inform decision-making around this. So we responded to the request for proposal. Um, we made some requests ourselves, so suggestions for modification in terms of particularly focused on that recognition of the really important role that pre-exposure prophylaxis is playing in prevention strategies and the fact that there are very few sets of data available to really understand what that might mean and how that might impact blood donation. So this was a collaborative effort in terms of coming up with a final version of the research protocol between the FDA and the organizations that were selected to, to conduct the study. That's really interesting. So is this, com excuse my ignorance, but is this common for the FDA to say, hey, we want this study done, who wants to do it? My experience is that this is not common, truly, um, that the FDA you know, obviously has a important regulatory role, but seldom is able to be in position to directly sort of engage with um, original research. Of course, there are aspects of FDA that do research, but in this case, I think it was their recognition of essentially a gap in the knowledge base that they really felt needed to be filled before one could consider moving to something such as an individual donor assessment approach in the U.S., and that's why they were able internally to find targeted funding and then ultimately support the project. That's very interesting. So how do you think the advanced study supports the new individual risk assessment plan we've implemented here in the U.S.? So I will complete one thought around that. So the study was designed in 2019. Um, this means it was designed right at that time when the 12-month deferral um, donation was in place. So this was even before we moved to a three-month deferral um, for men who have sex with men. And of course, now, as you just indicated, moving into the individual donation assessment approach um, to donor selection. So, so what I think it happened was, oh, as we all recognize, the pandemic had a dramatic impact on, on a lot of things. But the, the study had just enough of the elements of those different time periods that it was highly relevant. And so by asking those questions um, in the way that we did, we, we were successful it's in collecting the data that was informative. But we, we didn't exactly get the results that we expected. 
the original study was designed around expecting to have newly acquired or incident HIV infection in the participant group or the study population. We had no recently acquired or new HIV infections. We did identify HIV infections among the participants who were enrolled in the study, but it was a small number. In fact, there were only four HIV-positive participants, and all of these had what we call long-standing or had infection or had already seroconverted. So the primary objectives of the original design of the advanced study was to ask, what is the discriminant function of being able to identify a newly acquired HIV infection based on risk behaviors that were reported by those who would have those infections and those who wouldn't. Because we only had four total infections and none of them were new or incident infections, the secondary analysis really looking at that role of how does pre-exposure prophylaxis and things such as the total number of sexual partners itself um, relate to the potential risk profile of a donor. So, so this was very much a study that at the outset had one specific objective and then by virtue of the way it was designed, we were honestly able to more appropriately answer the bigger question that allowed us to move to the individual donor assessment. And so I think how this aligns with that IDA is that our findings really are remarkably consistent with how the individual donor assessment functions, which is to say individuals who report that they're taking pre-exposure prophylaxis, about half of our study population was, half wasn't. So we were very well powered to be able to look at differences between people taking PrEP and not taking PrEP, and then their number of sexual partners, and if they're engaging in specific sexual behaviors. Um, so in totality, it ended up, I think, being just exactly the kind of information that the FDA was hoping to, to achieve from the study, but we honestly didn't necessarily know that at the outset. I think that's a really good point. You started with one question, but kind of answered a different question. Research can be that way. and That's right. Perfect example of it. So. so were the results of the advanced study anticipated to be similar to the data that was available from the UK and Canada? Were you, were you expecting these results? This is a good question. And, and, and my somewhat slight hesitation is, you know, the advanced study is similar to some of those um, initiatives that were used in the FAIR process in the United Kingdom to make the decision that they could move to a individual donor risk assessment strategy. But the studies that have been done in Canada didn't quite take the same approach. They, they used a different approach. Um, so I would say on the whole, sort of at the, the broad summary level, the results are consistent. But honestly, each of the, the sets of um, research work that's been done in the UK and Canada, and now with the completion of the advanced study here in the US, have added a piece to the puzzle. And so they've all honestly come together to contribute very nicely. So the results are not out of step, but they're a little bit different, and they sort of highlight a different corner of the, the broader topic. And I think particularly as I was indicating, our ability with half of our participant group taking PrEP versus not taking PrEP really is a very unique data set that has not been replicated in any other study that we're aware of so far. So during the study, you expanded a couple of different parameters. At some point, you went from men aged 18 to 30 up to 39, and you went from the secondary questionnaire being from people who are HIV positive or taking PrEP to everyone. Why did you change, and do you think that had an effect on the results at all? 
Yeah, very important to, to sort of think about that, the methodologic implications of those study adjustments. So I'll focus on the age aspect first. So originally that the thinking was um, the subgroup of men who have sex with men who are at highest risk of HIV acquisition rather are those in the, the age range of 18 to 30. And so it was thought that by focusing on that, we might have the sort of best power to identify um, that the, how the questions perform. But honestly, once we started the study, we were getting a lot of interest from the community of MSM saying, we would like to be a part of this study, but we're over the age of 30. Ah, okay. And, and so there was a recognition that there was interest and, and clearly somebody who could start donating, let's say at age 35, could potentially be a donor for 25 years or 30 years or more. Yeah. I think there was a recognition that by opening up or expanding it to be a broader, slightly broader age group. It's obviously not inclusive of all potential ages, but up to age 39, it allowed us to to really open the study to that larger population and also then learn if there were any differences potentially between people in their 20s, if we want to say it that way, and in their 30s. Mm -hmm. so, so that was the rationale there, was that actually there was an interest so we wanted to open that up to, to allow people. And that, frankly, also helped us get closer to achieving our targeted enrollment for the study. With respect to the follow-up questionnaire, you know, again, this links to that recognition that we originally thought that we might see more individuals having new HIV infections. And so the follow-up questionnaire was supposed to get into sort of an epidemiologic or detailed assessment of the risk behaviors to try to place those in context. But when we started seeing relatively early on that we were not having individuals, certainly not very many, who were testing HIV positive, it became clear that the follow-up questionnaire data for it to have most meaning would be if everybody in the study was eligible to complete that information. And there's some detailed questions on pre-exposure prophylaxis use. So for example, how frequently is somebody taking pre-exposure prophylaxis are they using it on daily dosing if it's oral medication? Are they using it on what's called on-demand? How, when was they, did they last use it? Have they used different kinds of PrEP? You know, there's oral PrEP and there's also injected PrEP and things like this that we couldn't really get into detail on the, the test questions that would be on the donor questionnaire, but could get into detail on the follow-up questionnaire. And so once as a study investigator team, we realized how relevant those answers would be for all participants, that's when we changed to to open up the follow-up questionnaire for everybody who participated. So how do you think, if at all, the results of the advanced study could be used to help guide future studies or policies on the ability of those who are on or have been on PrEP to donate? Well, I think that the, the major sort of question that we have not answered, but we have brought a, a clear attention to is indeed, you know, what does taking PrEP mean and is PrEP use or taking PrEP by itself, a exclusion from donation. And I, I will say with respect to the results that we've seen, you know, there are individuals who certainly want to do everything they can to reduce their risk of HIV acquisition. And so they may be taking PrEP and they may have a very low number of sexual partners. And it raises a, a natural question of why would those individuals potentially be excluded from donating if other than the fact that they um, are taking PrEP, they otherwise fit the, the risk profile of accepted donors. 
So I think that we have insights into behavior. We also, with the study, have insights into the complexity that PrEP represents. I know it's obvious to to most people, but pre-exposure prophylaxis is intended to be taken to reduce the risk of HIV acquisition. And and so in so doing, that doesn't mean that it is 100% effective all of the time. There are these types of infections that are called PrEP breakthrough infections. So this is for any number of reasons. It could be honestly the specific form of PrEP may not work for an individual or they might have missed a dose or two or who knows what exactly could have happened. But they could actually be exposed to HIV um, while they were not fully taking all the PrEP medication or had some other issue and have become infected with HIV. These are the infections, frankly, that we worry about the most in terms of that risk to the safety of the blood supply because you could have a low-level HIV infection, and if you're taking pre-exposure prophylaxis and, and start taking it again, you may control that infection, but you still may have enough virus that it could be transmitted by transfusion. So the advanced study, again, because we don't have a lot of HIV positives, doesn't directly answer that question, but it does contribute to showing that PrEP use is currently very prevalent and appropriately prevalent in the MSM population. So, so I think it shows us that we have more research we need to do to ask that question. Can somebody be taking PrEP and potentially be an eligible donor? I do not know the answer, and I don't think any of us do, um, but we see that there is some research that we need to, to continue to do, plus understanding if a breakthrough infection happens, again, not necessarily in the, in the world of blood donation, but we can look to things like clinical trials to see where breakthrough infections did happen. What do we see about the biomarkers of HIV infection and how easily they are to detect, right? So the, the major thing we focus on, and of course, blood safety is wanting to be able to detect an infection. Our job is, of course, to prevent infection, but we have to detect that infection in terms of being able to prevent it from transfusion transmission. So we can look at the biomarker data, and we will need to look more closely at biomarker data to say as long as blood screening assays are performing as expected um, in identifying these infections, then that might give us an opportunity to ask, could somebody taking PrEP potentially be a donor? But we don't have that answer yet. So again, it, it, it shows us that there's, you know, like most things in research, answering one question typically leads to creating several more questions. Which leads very nicely to my next question which is, is there any conclusive evidence or are there ongoing studies to evaluate whether or not PrEP can cause a false negative? You did mention that people could potentially not develop disease but still be infectious. Is there other studies looking at that? Yeah, so I will, I will sort of lean back on the, the clinical trials that have been done in the process of you know, seeking to show that PrEP is effective, have those situations where you might have early on, so this isn't like maybe more than 10 years ago, but just to kind of set in people's minds, times when we weren't sure, for example, if oral PrEP really worked. So there were head-to-head studies of people assigned to receive oral PrEP and people assigned to receive placebo. And you saw dramatic differences in the likelihood of HIV acquisition um, between those two groups with people taking oral PrEP, having much reduced risk of having HIV infection. As new forms of PrEP have come along, like injected PrEP, clinical studies had to be done. In those clinical trials, the comparison was between people taking oral PrEP and people taking injected PrEP um, or having injections to prevent HIV infection. 
and asking how did the risk of HIV acquisition, how was it, was it different um, for one form of PrEP versus another, or was there inferiority of any kind? Well, really the data show that both oral PrEP and injected PrEP are very effective at preventing HIV infection. But in both arms of those clinical trials, breakthrough infections did happen and biomarkers for HIV detection were absolutely altered. They were altered in different ways with injected PrEP having much more profound alteration of our ability to detect HIV infection by nucleic acid testing or serology responses than oral PrEP. But even in the oral PrEP sides of these studies, you saw changes, really delays in our ability or in people's ability to detect the presence of HIV infection. And it's that body of work that truly continues to give everybody sort of concern and justifiable caution around changing the rules and allowing individuals who are taking PrEP to be active donors at this time. What do you see as the biggest obstacle in increasing donor recruitment while maintaining a safe blood supply in MSM and other LGBTQ communities? So I think there's a couple of layers to, to this topic. So, so one of the obstacles um, for directly reaching out to the community is there is a whole generation of men who have sex with men who believe that they will never be eligible to donate. And now that will change, right? They, they now may be eligible if they fit the criteria. So we have to, as a blood banking community, for those of us who work at blood banks or blood centers, figure out how to effectively create educational messages to the community to reach out and say that the rules have changed. So we have to figure out how to help people know that this may have changed for them and if they're interested to participate. So there's this impact that I think really is partially on our shoulders, perhaps on AABB's shoulders, but anybody who's in the, the, the side of trying to recruit potentially eligible blood donors, figuring out how to um, appropriately communicate that that change in rules has happened. And then there's another layer, a broader layer to this, right? There are certainly also allies of LGBTQ plus community that were also felt that the policy was not fair, only allowing one group to have a certain set of rules and everybody else having a different set of rules. Now we have a common set of rules. Um, we have a history of, for example, not being allowed to collect on certain college campuses because of the apparent or thought to be discrimination in the policy. So we also need to do outreach to know that the rules have changed outside of the LGBTQ plus um, community so that we can try to also attract allies back. You know, ultimately the success in changing the rules to uh, a common individual donor assessment approach is going to allow us to go to any potential area where we could recruit donors and say, here are the rules. Those are different than they used to be. And, and we certainly want anybody who's eligible and interested um, to consider donating. So, so I, I think there's two bridges if I've gone a little complex into what I'm trying to say, there's two bridges. There's the direct outreach to the community that was most affected, meaning those who were not allowed to donate because of the rule. And then there's a broader outreach that we need to do to just say that the perspective has changed. And I think that this um, will help us also augment the supply. I completely agree. I do think we have to get the word out. I've been asked a few times since the rule changed and people seem surprised. They thought they would never be able to donate. So I think yeah, 
community outreach is very important. So looking back at this whole process, this whole study, what surprised you the most? Really interesting sort of thought-provoking question. You know, there were two layers uh, that I think that surprised me. The first one is maybe self-evident, but um, we all, anyone of us who was actively trying to do community-based research during the period of the COVID-19 pandemic knows how hard these studies were. What surprised me specifically for the advanced study was I shouldn't have been surprised. So again, in retrospect, it shouldn't be surprising. But it is a really tough request or ask of a group of study participants to say, please come in in this pandemic where we don't know that we can necessarily keep you safe. Again, the study started mid-2020 and participate in a study that may or may not change the rules that specifically don't allow you to be a blood donor right now. So it was quite difficult. The first year of the enrollment period was quite difficult. You know, we really struggled with how do we make a connection only through social media, you know, only through sort of not normal routes, especially trying to, again, engage with a population that historically blood centers had, of course, said, please don't donate. Then as the pandemic sort of, you know, continued on, and most importantly, vaccines became available for SARS-CoV-2, that changed how we were able to recruit. We were able to turn to more traditional venues, so social events, meaning in-person events. Those could have been pride festivals, but they could be concerts, they could be attending community centers. That changed the way that we were able to reach out and engage with the audience, where we were able to have a more meaningful direct conversation about the study and, and why participation would be so relevant. So it was very hard um, at the beginning, just trying to convince people to come in by saying, you know, in, in a way, kind of trust us. We're trying to do an important study here. Um, and then it was easier when you're actually able to act, naturally have that in-person conversation and let the ebb and flow of, of sort of asking and addressing questions. But overall, it still was quite a bit of work recruiting for the study. And I will make the point, it is clear in the article, right? The original target was 2,000 enrolled participants. We did not achieve 2,000 enrolled participants. We did achieve around 1,700 individuals being willing to come in and, and be screened to participate in the study. So we, we almost achieved our enrollment, but not quite. And so in summary, it really was recruiting for participation in a research that doesn't directly benefit the individual, but could change policy um, is a difficult proposition. And I maybe didn't realize myself how hard it would be. Ultimately, we were successful. We were successful because to be able to do that in each of the eight communities where we did this study, we really had to actively engage with LGBTQ plus community centers and also leaders in those communities to figure out what was the right recruitment message for each of those communities. And it wasn't the same in all of the locations. So the complexity of multi-center studies overlaid with um, the COVID pandemic, just uh, it, it was a good lesson, again, for me about community-based research always has challenges, and we were particularly challenged. I was worried, I would say, honestly, at the maybe the end of 2020, would we ever get this study done? And then really in 2021 and, and into 2022, we really had nice enrollment 
and, and got to the stage where we had achieved what we thought we needed to be able to then move to the analysis phase. And of course, the rest is what's really represented in the publication and transfusion. Yeah, I guess thinking about most donor studies, you use your donors. These are folks that you've told for years, we don't want you, but maybe help us and maybe we'll want you in the future. That had to be really tricky, even without a pandemic. It was tricky and it is exactly that, right? So most of us, as you just said, but I kind of maybe reiterate, are are used to individuals come to a blood center because they really do want to, to donate for the greater good of society. And then if we decide that we are interested in asking them to participate in research, generally speaking, donors are mostly willing to participate in research. Again, a commitment to, to the betterment of all as much as possible. Very different scenario than the population we had to, to recruit here. So it was a reminder that we, we really do have to think through who are we trying to connect with um, in terms of participation and what are the right approaches for doing that. How we speak to donors was not how we would have been successful in trying to recruit for the advanced study. Kudos to you for getting 1,700 people during a pandemic and using very innovative ways of finding them, such as pride events and concerts and festivals. That's yeah, otherwise, how do you find them? Because they're not at your donor center. So that's really amazing. Well, and, and maybe if I could just pick up on that. So so that part of the recognition was, again, yes, the pandemic, that meant we had to rely on social media. We we tried many different ways to try to reach the, the, the group that we were trying to speak to. So, you know, there was general social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There were other opportunities where we partnered with some potential social influencers to try to raise awareness. There was a separate initiative outside of the formal study that was done between um, Tinder and Match and the human rights campaign to actually post ads on dating apps. And then there was print media that we used, videos that were created. We did a lot of innovative thinking about all of the ways that we might be able to raise awareness. And ultimately, what I think did work was by doing so many different approaches on different channels, both in person, paper printed material, and then social media, that probably, although I don't have the, the data to back me up with what I'm saying, but probably it was those who saw two different approaches in terms of being made aware of the study that might have ultimately made them go to the website to schedule a visit for the study. So I, I think we we were successful because we used all the recruitment tools we could think of. And I think those who saw the message by two different paths or more were probably the ones that were most likely to participate. That's really interesting. So did you have a donor recruiter on your team? Like I'm sorry, me as a physician blood banker, I don't think I would have been smart enough to think about oh, let's use Match and Tinder. Let's use, um, you know, let's do it by both print and social media. How did y'all come up with that plan? You know, th this study truly was done with the expertise of all of those different groups from scientists to the, the researchers to the, the team that did the recruitment to communications teams at the, the blood centers and, and the community organizations we partnered with. Really, we all worked in working groups to to basically brainstorm and say, what are the things that we think might, and then those who had expertise in the, that particular method or approach, then went off and really tried to define and develop the materials that they thought would be most useful. 
So what I'm saying is, you know, the, the graphic identity that was used to define the study was something that was designed by um, one of the community partner organizations, a staff member one of the community partner organizations. The videos that were developed were done in collaboration with people who had media expertise. How do you create an engaging video and things like this? The expertise of the people in each of those different disciplines to come together um, to create enough, what we hope, and, and we are, of course, pleased to say, enough engaging material that did do the job that had to be done, which was to make people aware of and ultimately recruit people for steady visits. That's great. It does take a village to do anything these days, I feel like. Exactly. So my final question, what's next? Well, you know, there's two layers of what's next. I, I am really certainly very proud of the accomplishments of the advanced study and the FDA's willingness to change guidance. But we know that there's more research questions to be done specifically related to PrEP um, and, and its potential role or not in changing eligibility based on that. But we've now entered a new era in donor selection, right, with individual donor assessment. This means we have incredibly important questions in terms of monitoring and surveying, surveilling rather, the, the safety of the blood supply to make sure that there hasn't been a change in safety. So there's specific targeted research studies, but I think now the most important thing is the fact that we have tools in place in the U.S. to be able to assess how is individual donor assessment working? Um, is there anything that leads us to believe that there's a change in the safety or not, um, but basically to monitor. So it's a, it's still a form of research, but it's a different kind of research, and it's going to be based on large numbers. And there is a specific program. It's called the Transfusion Transmissibles Infe in Transmissible Infections Monitoring System, or TIMS program, also partly funded by FDA. That is a tool that is in place for us to be able to assess the impact. That, I think, is the key question that almost everybody in, in the blood banking community has in their mind right now. What has been the impact? As we all know, we've just started implementing individual donor assessment at most centers. In fact, it's no more than two or three, perhaps no more than a maximum of four months in use. So it's too soon to know. From now, everybody's going to be very anxious to say, and what are the results? Are we seeing changes in Who's coming in to donate? Do we have more donors? Do we have changes in the risk profile? All of those are very highly relevant questions. So I think that's what's next is really asking, and now what has been our ability to discern change or no change um, in the safety of the blood supply? And of course, we would be very thrilled if the answer is we really see no change. That instills a lot of confidence, but we don't know the answer. The science will tell us, the data will tell us. Do you think we're going to lose any donors now that we've switched? Do you think we're going to have heterosexual donors who have to answer, I have had more than one sexual partner? Are we going to lose donors? I hadn't actually thought about it until right now. I do think that we will lose donors. Um, it's just it's a matter of the donor history questionnaire has now changed. And there's new questions that were not previously asked. And so particularly some repeat donors might be surprised at these questions. And some of them may be so surprised that they are offended 
and they decide that they're uncomfortable responding to those questions. What we've seen, or at least what we've heard from adoption of a similar approach in Canada, which has been in effect now for almost a year, is really there's a very small number of donors, at least in their context, that have had a concern, such of a concern that they're no longer willing to be donors. But it's still new questions. And it is asking questions about total number of sexual partners in the last three months, partner change um, in the last three months. And then if you have more than one partner or have had a partner change, asking a question about anal sex. This is clearly going to catch some individuals off guard because they weren't ex- see it because they'd never seen it before. So I am sure that individual medical directors at blood centers are going to get some negative feedback. I would guess it's not going to be too great because my, my presumption, and it is a presumption, and sometimes when we make assumptions, that's bad. But those individuals who are long-term repeat donors may not have high numbers of sexual partners, and so they may never see that specific question about anal sex or not. Right. It may never pop for them, yeah. But, but, but for the most part, probably most won't. Interesting. So we have a small, I'm at the University of North Carolina, and we have a small hospital-based donor room where we collect platelets and plasma biapheresis. And I have so far had no questions, no comments come up about it. I, we, we adopted it very early because we're small, we're nimble, so we could easily adopt the new individual donor assessment. And people have accepted it in open arms, so that's been good. We're excited about it. That's great to hear. I and, mean, you know, it is, I, I think... Um, Encouraging right? to, to, to know. I, I am sure that, that not always will that be the case, but I think you know most donors understand that there's a reason why we're asking the questions. Right. We're not asking just for fun. We're asking for a real reason. For real reason. And, and if there does get to be a dialogue, and I'm not saying that this is a circumstance for you at all, but if there is ever a dialogue, you know, it's like these are now questions that every single donor who comes in to, to potentially donate are being asked, and that makes it really you know, sort of as equitable as it can be. Clearly, responses are not going to be the same to those questions. But the fact that the questions are the same may also, you know, make some people more comfortable with their willingness to, to answer them. And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Custer for joining us for a really fascinating discussion today. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.